exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In World News Today, details have been emerging of the plan by billionaire entrepreneurs to mine asteroids for their resources, according to the BBC. The multi-million dollar plan would use robotic spacecraft to squeeze chemical components of fuel and minerals, such as platinum and gold, out of the rocks. The founders include a film director and an explorer, James Cameron, as well as Google's chief executive, Larry Page, and its executive chairman, Eric Schmidt. They even aim to create a fuel deposit in space by 2020. In national news today, the U.S. Justice Department has filed the first criminal charges linked to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, according to the BBC. A former BP engineer was arrested on charges of intentionally destroying evidence. Kurt Mix of Texas faces two counts of obstruction of justice. He is accused of trying to delete text messages between himself and a supervisor in October 2010, containing details of how attempts to cap the leaking well were going. And in Michigan news today, Today, Michigan politicians are beginning to wrestle with an issue that's proven to be contentious in other parts of the country, according to Michigan Radio. Fracking or hydraulic fracturing is a controversial method of extracting natural gas by pumping water, sand, and chemicals into deep underground wells. Both opponents and advocates of the process have started taking action in the state legislature. The Associated Press writes that House Democrats on Wednesday plan to discuss a bill that would regulate fracking, while the House Natural Gas Subcommittee released a report Tuesday uh, encouraging more natural gas production. And you'll hear more on fracking later in the hour because today on Impact Exposure, we're doing a special series regarding environmentalism as well as sustainability issues and events going on here in the state as well as here at MSU. But right now in the studio, I have um, the director of MSU Museum, Gary Morgan. He is here to talk about the book Silent Spring because 50 years have passed since the book publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. The book sparked an environmental movement and eventually led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. So, Gary Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really nice to be here, Emily. So tell me a little bit about this book. Why was it so important and what topics regarding the environment did it dive into? Well, it would be no understatement to say that there are two periods of environmental awareness pre-Silent Spring and post-Silent Spring. They're two completely different worlds. In the book, Rachel Carson managed to raise public awareness of things which were happening all around them, but which people really weren't aware of in any detail. And it was a time of great optimism and enthusiasm for, for chemicals and industry, and that humanity could really manipulate and change the world, make it the way that we wanted it to be, that we were being assailed on all sides by all kinds of problems, particularly pests which were destroying our crops 
so you know, agriculture and causing all kinds of human health. And the the belief structure back then in the in the fifties and early sixties was that we could control all that. We could get it to do what we wanted to do by the application of these really, really powerful chemicals. And what Rachel Carson did was to raise awareness that this had a real risk associated with it. So the story has this enormous worldwide and historic dimension and amongst the hundreds and hundreds of different case studies that she mentions in her book uh, there's one in particular that takes as much prominence as any other and that has a very strong local dimension to it. And can you tell me a little bit about that local dimension? Well, the very name Silent Spring, in fact, largely draws from this story. Um, amongst the case studies that she, uh, she profiles in her book is the research of an MSU faculty member called George Wallace. George Wallace was an ornithologist, and he and his students identified a catastrophe that was happening here at MSU before the eyes of everyone, but which no one really understood why, what the causal mechanisms were until he and his students looked at it. Rachel Carson picked up on that study and it was that that inspired the name Silent Spring more than anything else in her book because what George Wallace and his students were looking at was the amazing and widespread death of birds on campus, particularly the robins. Uh, and it was that notion of a spring without bird song that inspired the name of the book. The MSU Museum will have an exhibit that commemorates the book Silent Spring that we're talking about right now, and that will be going on from May 29th to December 30th. Can you describe the exhibit and why you decided to highlight this book at the MSU Museum? Mm. Well, good exhibits require various elements to them. They need to have good stuff in them. Uh, They need to be well-designed, etc. They need to look good. But Ultimately, they need to tell a really, really good story. And Silent Spring is a really compelling story. And it's a story, as I say, that not only has that international and historic dimension, but the really strong links with MSU. And the other element which which we are trying to emphasise in the exhibit is that it's not just about the past. It's not just about a book that was written 50 years ago. This is a book which has as much relevance today as it did when it was written. And not just about issues like pesticides and the capacity of humans to change their environment in very nasty and inadvertent ways, but broader issues that we are now grappling with, such as the the story of global warming, climate change and so forth. And the ultimate message of the book is that we must must be cautious. We must be aware of our place within the broader dimension of ecosystems and ecology and that the powers that humans have to change their environment can also be powers which turn against us. You've worked as a national parks and wildlife manager as well as a wilderness uh, conservation officer. Can you talk a little bit about your background in wilderness conservation and how it may relate to the Silent Spring exhibit? Well, you you have done your research well. Yes, yes, I've done that, uh, as well as managing museums in various parts of the world. And being being involved in on-the-ground management of national parks does give you a different perspective. Uh, That in-situ management, seeing things happening in front of your eyes, and balancing uh, the, the issues of human access, providing opportunities for people to enjoy the environment, to enjoy the wilderness around them, without destroying it in the very process of enjoying it, is a very, very delicate balance. Uh, certainly a balance which relates very closely with the message of Silent Spring. Um, the message of that book and what Carson was saying was not 
that humans shouldn't engage with agriculture and shouldn't uh, be able to enjoy their environment, rather that we had to exercise great caution in doing so. And my time with National Parks and Managing Wilderness reinforced all of those messages. Running museums is great fun, but there's nothing quite like seeing people out in the bush having a good time, (laughs) especially uh, if it's not doing damage to that environment. You've been the director at MS Museum for less than three years now, and you're a native of Australia, as our listeners can probably tell by by your beautiful accent. And you've worked in Malawi as well as New Zealand and the United Arab Emirates. How does your work abroad influence what you've done here at MSU, and and what are your hopes um, for the museum? Well, firstly, I just thank you for saying that Australians have a lovely accent. Uh, (laughs) It's a compliment that we don't get back home, of course. Um, Look, I I think it does help to have an international dimension on all of these issues, whether it's culture, whether it's management of the environment. And one of the great things about Michigan State University is that it's a university which encourages uh, students to engage in activities overseas and in the study abroad program and so forth, which I think is so fundamental, so important to be able to see how things are panning out outside of one's own natural and local environment. So I said, with Silent Spring, it's an international book, but most of the examples, in fact, all of the examples, apart from a few Canadian ones, are set within the United States. But the story is international. And when we look at the issues that are engaged with that book and that we'll deal with in the exhibit, they certainly are mostly exampled through America, but, but there are case studies all around us happening in Africa, happening in Southeast Asia, happening in South America, etc. And in fact, in those countries where, because of the pressures of development, because they often lack the same kind of environmental legislation which America now has, thanks largely to Silent Spring, the issues of environmental damage can in fact be more acute. Wonderful. Well, in the studio is um, Gary Morgan. He's the director of the MSU Museum, and he, he was here to talk about Silent Spring. Um, the MSU Museum will be doing an exhibit that commemorates the book Silent Spring, May 29th to the 30th. Um, we're talking about Silent Spring because 50 years have passed since the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and the book sparked an environmental movement and eventually led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, so, Gary Morgan, thanks so much for joining us tonight on Impact Exposure. Been a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. 
You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. We celebrated Earth Day on Sunday. Up next is an interview I did with a Michigan environmental activist, Lynn Henning. And this is an interview I did with her in 2010. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone I have Adrian, Michigan resident, Lynn Henning, who won the Goldman Environmental Prize last week for her efforts against concentrated animal feeding operations. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, again, you're awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize, um, which I hear it has been described as a Nobel Prize for environment, environmental work and is given annually to one person on each continent per year. Um, so talk about the work that you were awarded for. Um, they consider me a grassroots environmentalist. I'm a family farmer from Lenawee County, Michigan. I'm out near Clayton and Hudson area. And I do water monitoring um, below CAFOs and concentrated animal feed operations in the Lenawee County Hillsdale area. And I do cover uh, some of the over 200 in the state. So what, what got you into um, covering the, the concentrated animal feeding operations? Uh, back in 2000, I was actually blamed as being a whistleblower on a CAFO that had a very large discharge. And, and what were your primary concerns about it? Uh, the primary concerns is the discharges are getting into the waterways, and at that time it went into a public swimming lake at Lake Hudson, and there was no notification to people that were using the public lake that there was a discharge. But for me, I've been hearing so much about fertilizers and, you know, this trend to go organic, and when I think about a fertilizer, I thought, you know, thinking that manure would be the most natural and safe fertilizer. Is is that the case? Uh, manure in the olden days and for people that grass, you know, feed their animals out on pasture, manure is an excellent fertilizer. But in today's times where we have manure uh, that is put into lagoons and they use what they call a liquid system and you have milkhouse waste, you have silage leachate, chemicals, antibiotics, growth hormones, you have blood, you have uh, the copper sulfate that they wash the cow's feet, that this is all washed out into a lagoon. It sits in ferments, and it's applied untreated to the land. And back in 2001, the U.S. EPA did a report stating that there are 168 chemicals in manure. Wow. And how do you think so many chemicals can get in there? Uh, due to the fact that, um, like I said, all the chemicals they use in the milk house, the antibiotics, the growth hormones, and what's used at the site and location. And, and I was reading that waste from one cow equals um, that produced by 23 humans. Is that a correct number? That's very correct. Um, they say approximately a cow puts out 117 um, pounds of waste per day. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. And and so you said you're a farmer yourself. Um, so what are you doing that is different from, let's say, mainstream farming or, or a capo? Uh, I actually don't raise livestock. I'm a family farmer. We grain crop. And I do raise my own garden and produce my own food. So I'm curious, after all this work, um, you know, working with those that, that raise, you know, a lot of cows or pigs, um, are you a vegetarian? 
Uh, not totally. I work and uh, trade and barter with uh, people that raise organic uh, turkeys and and chickens of that nature. So we've been talking about uh, concentrated animal feeding operations or, or CAFOs, but talk a little bit about what what that is and what that means. A uh, concentrated animal feed operation is, by definition, through the U.S. EPA and the Clean Water Act. Um, uh, a dairy would be 700 cows and above would be a CAFO for animals. And what we have here in our area is we have 12 CAFOs. We've got over 60 animal waste lagoons with over 400 million gallons of waste, and we're up to 1,077 violations just here in the Lenaway Hillsdale area. And were you the one that found most of those, um, you know, issues going on? Uh, the environmentally concerned citizens of South Central Michigan, along with the Michigan uh, Sierra Club Water Sentinels, have worked jointly together on getting these violations. And what are some other environmental costs of industrial-style or style farming? Uh, we're seeing um, property values drop near these facilities and people getting their taxes lowered. We're seeing road damage in the excess of our, in our area of over $200,000. Uh, we're seeing huge amounts of subsidies go to CAFOs. And we're seeing a lot of, uh, they use a lot of fuel and electricity. And some of the main concerns is we don't feel these are sustainable due to the facts that they do not, you know, the agricultural practices and standards are not adequate to protect the people or the human health from these CAFOs. So, you know, we've been talking about a lot of violations that's come out, you know, in your area, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the work that you've done, but have you, um, do you think that you've been able to change farming yet with um, the work that you have been doing? I think we are slowly moving towards the right direction here that, uh, uh, the state has already issued, um, out of the 200 CAFOs, over 40 of them have been fined and uh, have civil penalties for violations across the state. So I've, I've watched a lot of documentaries about, um, you know, the meatpacking industry, you know, documentaries like Food Inc. or things like that. Um, and it's just, it's surprising to me to see how much the, the, the meat industry has changed over the past, let's say, 50 years or so, um, in which you're getting a lot of animals in one place and a lot of them, you know, some may not ever see the sun, some, you know, situations like that. Why is it that, that the meat industry has gone in that direction? Um, I can't understand myself why they're going in that direction when we have 56,000 farmers in Michigan and we only have 200 CAFOs. And I do not believe that it's realistic that a farmer has to expand if they actually, you know, intensify what they're doing. And, uh, and it, it, to me, it's much cheaper to put a cow out on a pasture than to build a barn and try and haul waste and have lots of equipment. So I hear that your in-laws' health um, were affected by the mega farms that, that you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I can. Back in 2003, my father and mother-in-law are both lifetime family farmers, and a CAFO was nearby and applied waste, and we've had them tested by Dr. Kay Kilburn, who is the expert on hydrogen sulfide in the world back in 2003. 
and they were both diagnosed as the highest, um, and it can cause um, brain damage. It can cause memory loss. It can cause anger, uh, loss of balance, and other people in the area had also been tested. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, because I was reading, I think it was an article by the uh, Detroit Free Press. It says, besides the overpowering stench, the manure can emit ammonia and hydrogen sulfide, which can cause lung, uh, cause skin, lung, and eye irritations, as well as damage to the nervous system, according to the U.S. Uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So I, I did not know that, and that was pretty interesting to read about. Um, we, we have numerous people across the country now coming forward that uh, their illnesses are being caused from the animal waste being either applied or from the facilities. What do you think are the other options besides applying, you know, animal waste to fields or things like that? I think that you have several options. You can, number one, treat all the waste. Number two, you can uh, eliminate the liquid system because we're using clean, fresh groundwater to make waste. And we've got people doing without drinking water around this country where we're using water to rinse down waste in barns. And the other factor is we can go back to the pasture-based system because family farmers have fed the, this country for generations. So again, for our listeners, I'm talking with Lynn Henning. She won the Goldman Environmental Prize last week for her environmental efforts. So I, I heard that you thought it was a prank call when the Goldman Foundation called. Yes, I did, because it was after 9 in the evening. And I uh, was very surprised and very humbled at the award and had never even heard of them at that point. Wow, and and to to hear that it's it's also been you know considered the Nobel Prize for environmental work. That's 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 pretty interesting. That with your line of work, you wouldn't know what the uh, Goldman Environmental Prize was. That's pretty cool. Um, so I, I hear that you know throughout your work, you've you've it hasn't been easy for you, in that you've been threatened, sued, or even had dead animals dumped on your porch. Can you talk about some of that? Yes, I have. I had dead animals put in my mailbox on my front porch on my car. I'd been trapped on a back road by manure semi-haulers. We'd been chased to the police department. We'd had combine damage at one point where our combine tank had been tampered with. We've had our mailbox blown up. And in December, my two-year-old granddaughter's bedroom window got shot out while she was in the bedroom. Oh, my gosh. So... Now that, you, that you've received the Goldman Environmental Prize, um, what are your hopes um, for the way that um, concentrated animal feeding operations work and where the farming industry is going? What are your hopes after, now that you've um, achieved this, this award? My hopes are to educate this country that, like I said, family farmers have fed this country for generations on pasture-based systems, and I think that CAFOs are not sustainable, and I think that we need to re-look at our, the way practices and standards are because the standards and practices that are designed now were meant for small family farmers, not very large operations. Well, Lynn Henning, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Oh, 
Admiral! We've just received word of an invasion! Speak quickly, maggot! Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir! We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded! You stupid ninny! That's the Asian invasion! It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tappingest music out of the Korea, Japan, and China! But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects! Shut up and listen to the music, Private! That catchy beat knows no language barrier! Now move out, everyone! Sir, yes, sir! The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on... The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to The Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Michigan State University's Board of Trustees voted to approve the Energy Transition Plan earlier this month. And to talk about the plan is Jennifer Battle of the Office of Campus Sustainability. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Emily. So tell us a little bit about this energy transition. It's been a year in the making. What was the final result? Well, the final result was a long-range plan that had to optimize five key variables for the university. Capacity, which is the ability for MSU to provide energy it needs for its critical functions. Cost, making sure that this plan is affordable and we're not increasing the um, impact on tuition for students and families. Um, reliability, making sure we're providing reliable power, making sure that we're responsible stewards of our environment, and also looking at health impacts of our energy-producing activities. So we had to balance all five of those variables. And what we've come up with is a long-range vision for the university to move toward renewable energy with some specific milestones along the way. So this is a living plan. We intend on uh, extending the planning horizon as we continue to do more and, and reviewing the plan every five years in a very thorough and robust way. But we have a, we have a frame work and we have a plan of action for the university. So the original goal was for the university to be powered by 100% renewable energy. That was the original goal as of a year ago. However, the final plan was for the university to use 40% renewable energy by 2030. So why don't you think the committee decided to reach its original goal of 100%? The original vision for the committee is for the university is still to move towards 100% renewable energy. But again, in balancing those five variables, we had to think about how we could reasonably move toward that goal. So we came up with a planning timetable with uh, goals that were set for every five years going through 2030. The plan does not end at 2030. We, again, at this point in time, think that we can reasonably predict what we can achieve by 2030. So the as the plan continues to be updated over the years, the planning horizon will extend, so 2035, 2040, et cetera, and we should be continuing to progress towards that goal or that overall vision of 100% renewable energy while we're balancing those five variables. Recently, MSU held an online forum to discuss this decision that was made by the Board of Trustees regarding the energy transition plan. And a press release from the Sierra Club said, um, quote, that the move um, that many students saw the move as a way for the university to avoid t- tough questions, having it be an online forum. And they said there wasn't a lot of press to get people involved in this in this conversation. So what are your thoughts on 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 that statement? And, and what what do you see that that happened? Well, actually, the goal of that event was, you know, the energy transition plan is one of several energy activities that the university is involved in. And it's important for us to share with a lot of our alumni and our external 
uh, constituents that we don't normally get to talk to about what the university is doing. Um, to respond to, we weren't trying to get people there. We had a space that held under 100 people, and we did invite members of the community, all the members of the Energy Transition Committee, which did include um, some Sierra Clubbers and Greenpeacers, et cetera, and we also invited environmental stewards and a broad mix of people. We did have uh, people from local environmental groups come, and, you know, people were invited to view online. People could submit some questions ahead of time. We just, again, it's an open forum. All the questions that were submitted in advance will be answered. They were either answered during the event or they'll be answered online. So we tried to make it as open and inclusive as possible, and we could we wouldn't weren't turning anyone away. If, as long as there was space to accommodate folks, they could have come to the event. So the, the press release that I also read by the Sierra Club stated that the university, quote, relied on a, on a report from consultants who build coal plants rather than clean energy, unquote. And I know that MSU Beyond Coal is, was, has been active in also the steering committee as well as they've held numerous protests on campus trying to get us to completely stop our coal plant here. Uh, so what is your, what is your thought on this statement saying that, that we're, that the energy committee and the board of trustees were uh, consulted by people that bought coal plants? rather than people that were involved in clean energy. It's not really true. Black & Veatch is a very well-respected energy consultant, and they uh, actually have a lot of research and work in the renewable energy field. And what we asked Black & Veatch to do was to give us a survey and under- help us understand what technologies were available to MSU. They provided a report. That's what the report did. And then we used that report among other resources and models and tools to continue our energy transition steering committee discussions. I understand the energy transition plan was drafted by, um, as we said, the energy trend or steering committee. Um, and the students involved in the committee, I guess, from my understanding, refused to sign off on the final plan. And the students claimed that the plan wasn't strong enough um, and failed to address the coal burning power plant on campus. As we said before, MSU Beyond Coal has been a big, um, has been heading up that, that, that movement. So what were your observations on the students involved on the energy steering committee? Well, we actually had six students involved, and not everyone was from Beyond Coal or um, Greenpeace. We had undergraduate students and graduate students, and our goal for the steering committee was to represent a variety of uh, views. So a lot of times in the press it gets lost that there were other students on the committee, and there were two students who opted not to sign the transition plan, which was well within their um, their, their right with as members of the committee. Um, one of the concerns that was raised by a couple of the students was the continuation of the power plant. In early committee discussions, we talked about if we're moving towards renewable energy, what does that look like in the generation side? And I think what we opted to do because is to remain flexible in the way that we offered solutions to the university was to allow space for the development of what we would call distributed energy, which might be your traditional renewables that you might think of, wind and solar, which are not necessarily connected to a central source, as well as centralized energy options, which are, for example, a power plant. Our power plant is flexible, and historically have we majority burned coal. However, in the last few years, since 2006, we've cut our coal consumption by 28%, increased our energy efficiency, reduced our greenhouse gas emissions. So you can still have a centralized power source without necessarily using coal. And I think that our energy transition plan allows for the flexibility in solutions that will be both sent using the centralized power plant and distribution and also decentralized options. 
So currently, MSU is powered by less than 2% renewable energy. And, and again, that goal is to, to jump up to 40% renewable energy by 2030. What, where can we see this renewable energy here on campus now? And how do we plan on expanding that, that, uh, renewable energy by 2030. Sure, and I, I think that is an aggressive goal. I think some folks don't think it is aggressive, but considering where we're starting um, to make this kind of progress in this short amount of time, I think is going to require a lot of collaboration and research and partnerships. So right now, our renewable energy major- mostly comes from biomass, and we also have some solar installations at the MSU Surplus Storm Recycling Center and at the Pavilion. We, The board also at that April 13th meeting just also approved an anaerobic digester commercial scale that will go on South Campus Farms, which will provide um, renewable energy through, and they generate that through a combination of animal waste, food waste, and some other things that I'm not well versed in discussing. (laughs) But they're going to be providing uh, renewable energy to South Campus Farms. In addition, we have a geothermal unit that is under construction for the new uh, Life Sciences Edition that's going to provide heat and electricity. And um, we plan on, by by 2015, the majority of the renewable energy in the plan will likely come from additional biomass and purchasing green electricity from our energy partners. But what we'd like to continue to do, and we have a variety of research projects underway, um, I think we're going to have a combination of, again, research that's developed at Michigan State and with other partners, and then also um, renewable energy projects that might come from other people around the state, We are looking at wind energy right now. Now that technology has improved with wind, we're doing additional studies. We're also doing a large-scale solar study to see the impact of um, putting solar panels uh, on a large scale across the entire campus and what we can achieve by that. So there's a lot of projects underway, and when we set a goal as Spartans, we definitely plan on meeting it and hopefully exceeding it. You mentioned the research going on here at MSU, and and I know that there's a lot of professors and a lot of research going on right now regarding bioenergy and biofuels and and many other renewable energy projects. So were some of those people involved in that research a part of the steering committee, and how much um, did you try to seek out some of those faculty members here at MSU that are involved in that type of research at the moment? Well, the, the great thing about MSU is we have a ton of alternative energy research. Um, and I think that between some of the engineers on the committee, both not just faculty, but within the physical plant, we've tapped into a lot of the possibilities and a lot of the um, information about what research is going on. But I also want to give credit to the other MSU faculty who are doing things who may not have been on the committee. But we did um, work with research and graduate studies to kind of survey the alternative energy projects and renewable energy projects that are currently underway. Um, and they're not only within the faculty, but again, we're, we're talking about the research and the collaborations around the state and between states with some of our alternative energy projects. There's a whole lot going on in that space. And what we tried to do with the energy transition plan was to create an environment, set some goals so that that research funneled to our campus. So um, the great thing about being in a land-grant institution is that we're not doing this research in a vacuum or for a paper. We're doing it so that we can apply it. First, we want to apply it to our campus, and then we want to share the information so we can apply it broadly to other communities and other institutions. So we're, we're making a big transition here regarding energy at MSU. Will this cost more for the university to, to invest more in renewable energy versus you know, the fact that we're getting a lot of our energy from our coal plant? 
Well, I do want to talk about a couple areas of investment, and it's not just on the power generation side. The smartest thing to do and what we've recommended in our energy transition plan for improving the physical environment is actually conservation and really reducing our energy demand. So what we've recommended is that we prioritize investing in energy conservation and and energy efficiency activities and projects first, and that actually makes the most sense financially. It gives you a really good return and, uh, and a payback period, a smart payback period, and then you can start thinking about fuel switching, et cetera. Of course, all these things are going to be happening at the same time, but we're predicting that if we invest 30 to $40 million over the course of 10 years in conservation and efficiency projects, we can actually reduce the overall cost of energy by about 25%. So investing now saves later. What we can do with that savings is reinvest that into renewable energy development because, again, we have to make sure that this plan does not uh, create an impact on students by raising their tuition. We have to keep this education affordable for students and families. So, again, the the long-term goal is 40% renewable energy by 2030, so that's a little bit down the way. When will we start to see some things happening now, when will we first see the, the first effects of this energy transition here at MSU's campus? Uh, you're going to see it right away. In fact, I don't think some people haven't even waited for the plan to to get going. Um, one of the big efforts we have in conservation is our retro commissioning effort and uh, signing on to the Better Buildings Challenge, which is a, a presidential initiative, not our own President Simon, but President Obama and former President Bill Clinton initiative to reduce energy usage across the country. We're one of the early signatories to the Better Business Challenge and only one of, I want to say, five or six universities. And we've pledged to reduce our energy uses by 20% and 20 million square feet by 2020. So we're using um, a building profiling process that's helping us prioritize the conservation projects. But again, we've had conservation projects underway in terms of retro commissioning. We've seen anywhere from 20 to 34% savings as a result of this effort. And we are going to be going through our major buildings on campus. Uh, It's over 100. I can't remember the exact number. Um, So that's definitely happening. We have several ongoing studies, like I said, and as soon as things are viable and people can start to apply these pilot projects, we're going to do that. And in the renewable energy area, energy area, we're looking at thermal energy storage. So, for example, if you've got um, wind and solar power, that's wonderful when the wind is blowing and when the sun is shining. But what happens to that energy? Can you store that energy such that when the conditions aren't right for generation, we can still tap into that energy later? There are some algae farm studies because there are things that algae can do with carbon that are actually quite amazing. (laughs) So we're going to see if that's an option for Michigan State. I'd mentioned the large scale and uh, solar study as well as the wind study. We're also looking at other types of um, materials that might today be considered waste that we might be able to use for power generation. So I think those are things that are coming on the near horizon. Smart Grid is one that we recommended directly in the plan, which is a technology that kind of helps uh, communication between the end user and the um, power generator to smartly um, use energy. So I think we have a lot of conservation projects underway, classroom scheduling, um, 
lighting projects. There's just a whole list. And then on the generation side, we're, we've already increased our permit to use additional biomass, which is a renewable energy resource. We received that earlier this year. So we're using additional biomass and, um, we're, again, our wind study is underway. You're going to see in the life sciences building, we're going to start to use a geothermal system. And we'll be able to study the, how that's going and see where else we can apply it to campus. In the studio is Jennifer Battle. She's with the Office of Campus Sustainability, and she was in to talk about the energy transition plan that was approved by the university's Board of Trustees on April 13th. Jennifer Battle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Fracking has been making headlines over the past few years. It's a way to tap into natural gas found in shale rock deep underground. To talk about the controversy surrounding hydrofracking, or fracking, is Rita Chapman of the Sierra Club in Michigan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So first off, can you, um, as an introduction, can you tell me a little bit about the Sierra Club and what you do for the organization? Certainly. I'm the Clean Water Program Director, and essentially what that means is that anything having to do with water, I'm probably going to deal with it. When the phone rings, somebody's calling about a water problem, whatever it might be, I usually will take that call and deal with it. I work with volunteers uh, 97% of the time. We are a volunteer-led organization, and so it's truly grassroots. So they make our policies. They hire staff to help implement them and to get things done. So I know that the Sierra Club is against fracking, or they're they're wanting to make sure it's halted unless there's new measures put in place um, to try to, you know, set up standards for for the practice of, of fracking. So can you talk about, you know, the Sierra Club's view on fracking, and and can you kind of just go into describe a little bit to someone that may not know what that process entails? Okay, fracking um, is actually has actually been going on for a really long time in Michigan. It's been going on for decades. Uh, at the shallower levels, though, only up to a couple of thousand feet down underground. What they do is pump water laced with chemicals and sand uh, deep underground into the gas wells in order to blow apart the rock, uh, to open up little fissures so that the gas can more easily escape. The thing that's different now is that they're able to get to much deeper depths up to, I saw paperwork on one being proposed for 11,000 feet deep 
uh, just the other day. So they the other difference is also that they can go horizontally. So they will drill vertically, uh, you know, ten thousand feet down or whatever the whatever they're going for, and then they'll go sideways. Once they reach the bottom, they'll go sideways up to a thousand feet, which or pardon me, up to five thousand feet, very close to a mile. And it gives them a lot more surface area to tap into to, um, again, open up those rock fissures, and then the, the gas can just flow into the well and flow up, and then they capture it. So can you talk about uh, the shale drilling going on in Collingwood and Utica here in Michigan? Sure. Uh, that play, they refer to those as play, um, <laughs> a, a gas play. The, that's, the drilling there has been going on since uh, around... Well, early 2010, there was a record sale of um, leases by the state. The state earned $178 million on these things. Um, the leasing our mineral rights away to others or leasing surface land to give the gas companies access to mineral rights that they may have. Yeah, in Michigan, uh, the first well that was of this new, deeper variety of wells um, is now accessing the Collingwood Utica Shale, which is deeper than where they've been going for the past 40, 50 years. Um, The DEQ likes to tell us that we've never had a problem with fracking in Michigan, um, but that's because, well, I don't know if it's because of, but it's always been at these shallower depths, and now we're tapping into these deeper depths. Yeah, I was reading that I think Collingwood and Utica, is, it's something like 9,000 feet deep, where usually you're used to like around 1,000 feet. Right, right. And, and I was reading, um, I was reading um, an article earlier today, and it said a new con- congressional report lists 750 chemicals and compounds used in fracking, including 29 chemicals that are either known or possible carcinogens or are regulated by the federal government because of their risk to human health. And it's saying that deep fracking uses 100 times as much water as traditional types of national gas drilling. Correct. So how much how much water would it take to drill some 9,000 feet to try to get that natural gas out of the shale rock? In Michigan, they're going to use anywhere from 3 to 8 million gallons. Uh, they'll use a little bit of it at, at a time. Um, they won't use the whole 8 million gallons of water in, in one punch, but they stage it. They'll do a little bit at a time, and then they seal it off, and then they'll go a little deeper, and they seal it off. Um, all in all, they're they're using an awful lot of water. It's water that is forever gone from the system because while some of it does sort of backwash up, they call it flowback water, um, there's also produced water, but it, essentially it's water that comes back up out of the well after they've done the fracking uh, thing to it. Um, then that water has to be disposed of because no water treatment plant can deal with the chemicals. They can't take the chemicals back out and then w- make the water safe to discharge to a river or a stream. So they deep dispose it. They put it right back down into the ground into a deep disposal well. The interesting thing about that is that the waste water that they're trying to dispose of is not considered hazardous because it's oil and gas waste. So somewhere in there, the oil and gas industry won some exemptions. It's not uh, hazardous. It's just oil and gas. So they don't have to put it in the, um, the more stable rock formations down below. They, they put them in Class two wells that EPA and the DEQ both regulate. 
So what are we, we were talking about the issues with fracking regarding how much water it uses, the chemicals that it uses, and you're saying it also affects water quality. Are there other issues surrounding um, drilling for natural gas? There's um, lots of issues. Um, on Christmas Eve day, there was a hydrogen sulfide leak. I forget what county now, but it was up north. Um, and for many, many counties around the area, um, people were able to smell it. It's got a, it has this, the rotten egg smell. It was at extremely high concentrations. The DEQ said that it apparently ventilated or it, when it was emitted, it went straight up into the air, which is the one thing that protected people because since it didn't go, you know, laterally or sideways, people could smell it, but, but since it didn't go sideways, they weren't actually inhaling it at the high concentrations that it was being emitted. It's a neurological toxin, and it can really, really harm people, and it can even cause death if, uh, if they were exposed at the, high, the highest concentrations with no ventilation, etc. People have died from exposure to hydrogen sulfide. And there are no state standards. There are no EPA standards for this, for this gas. Now, the Sierra Club says that fracking has caused earthquakes in Ohio and in a wake of similar events in Oklahoma and Arkansas. How, how is that possible? Well, the impacts were caused actually not by the fracking itself, but by uh, the deep injection of the wastewater. And um, everyone knows that there are faults underground. There are faults under Michigan and faults under Ohio. Um, in Missouri, Wade's down in the south, there's the New Madrid Fault. Um, back in 1811, 1812, there were massive, massive earthquakes where lots of people died and many bad things happened. But we have faults here, and we have faults, you know, they have faults in Ohio. And when they blast that water, or when they dispose of all that water, it's displacing. It's, it's at high pressure, and it's displacing rock. So if there's a slippage point, uh, the water can act as a lubricant, plus it can act to just displace the rock and push it and cause pressure on it. And so it caused... A little bit of slippage. So what alternatives do we have to fracking to try to get natural gas? I'm glad you asked that. Um, let's, let's skip the natural gas altogether. Let's instead go after energy efficiency. I have read that we can save up to 40% or more of, of the energy that we do use if we were to use it more efficiently. Most gas in Michigan gets used to heat homes. Uh, how many people have had an energy audit and had every leak and crack in their house fixed so that they're not losing the heat that they, that they you know, put into their home, that they're paying good money for. Um, if everybody was to make their home as efficient as possible, as airtight as possible, they would use a whole lot less gas. People have seen huge difference in their gas bill from using less. Uh, and then there's also renewables. Uh, like wind and solar. Um, right now we're, we're meeting with officials around the state talking about offshore wind, taking advantage of the fact that the wind's almost always blowing out over our lakes. Um, let's harness that. It's free. And, you know, it, it's there for the taking. We just need to use it. All the jobs that could be created by doing it that way, there are People screaming for work, crying for work. Well, let's put them to work in the in the you know renewable energy industry and give them something to do and pay them for it that would clean up our air and 
It would just be better all around. And, and where does uh, offshore wind stand right now is in, in Michigan? Uh, legislation, I don't know if actually legislation has been introduced that would support it. Um, there is still some controversy surrounding it because people, some people are upset about the way they think it's going to look when they've never actually seen. Um, however, it's so far out off the shore, that's why it's called offshore, um, that it's not highly visible. Um, and to me, I'd rather see uh, offshore wind turbines rather than those um, the Lakers out there hauling more coal to another gas fire or a coal-fired power plant. I mean, you know, there there's a lot we can be doing instead of using fossil fuels. Yeah, so you're saying rather than fracking, I asked you, you know, what what's the alternative to fracking in order to get natural gas? And you said, why why use natural gas? Just cut your consumption. But how likely is it to try to get people to cut their consumption by 40%? And how could we regulate that and make it happen? I was watching uh, Human Planet last night, mm-hmm. and it was the last disc on the, the series, and it was saying, you know, we need to rethink how we... Um, live on this earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, I was, I was sitting there, you know, one person was an engineer and they were saying, it's not going to happen. People aren't going to change their ways. So, you know, how, rather than fracking and, and trying to use natural gas as an alternative to, to coal and, and oil, um, you know, how, how do we get people to cut their consumption and, and how do we regulate that? Well, we can try incentives. Um, the incentive that comes from using less means you're paying less out of your own pocketbook. Um, and I'm talking considerably less. Um, I've, I can't quote you exact numbers, but I remember doing the math quickly in my head and telling myself that that friend of mine who did make his house more energy efficient, he cut his bill by three quarters. That's an amazing amount of money. I, I just paid my gas bill for, uh, well, for the last one, I forget what period of time. It's like roughly 30 days or something. It was $180. Now, you know, when I get my energy audit and tighten up my house, if I can cut that by three quarters, that's a lot of money. Um, I think that alone is a very good incentive to do it. And if our legislature and other decision makers would come on board with the idea of um, helping people make that right choice, then we could move this a lot further. Um, until then, we just keep banging that drum and, and showing people one person at a time. And now, w- with the idea of having like a home audit or something like that, mm-hmm. is that something that you have to pay for up front? And do you think that that's stopping some people from doing such a thing? That's possible. Um, people also are extremely busy, and maybe they're thinking, oh, that's for somebody else, that's not for me. I'm sure my house is already as efficient as I can make it, et cetera. I mean, and it's and then homes aren't the only places either. There's businesses and commercial areas and, you know, churches that, you know, could be made more efficient in their use of the energy that they're paying you know, paying for every single month. So Rita Chapman, I'm curious, um, what are some of the biggest projects that the Sierra Club of Michigan is working on right now? Oh, we're working on hydrofracking, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've got several uh, several um, bills that are in the legislature now. Hopefully we'll see some movement on those sometime soon. We'll see. 
Uh, we're also working on, um, we've had some good success over the past several years on um, turning back several coal-fired power plants that were proposed in the state. So far, we've stopped six out of eight. We hope to see big changes continue there, you know, get turn those down. Um, also working to stop Fermi 3. And what is that? That would be the next uh, nuclear energy power plant. Um when we already have Palisades on Lake Michigan that's already got lots and lots of problems. And uh, Fermi, too, I believe, also has problems. But So people want to put in a new nuclear power plant in Michigan? And it would cost billions of dollars, and those dollars would be passed, those, those costs would be passed down to the people who pay for the energy. Everyone would pay lots more if that was to actually go through. Um so we're working on some of those issues, and, of course, there's the elections this year. We'll be working on those, too. All right. Well, in the studio is Rita Chapman. She is part of the Clean Water Program as part of the Michigan chapter of the Sierra Club. She came in to talk about fracking as well as other issues that the Sierra Club is working on. So, Rita Chapman, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features a special report by Impact's Gabby Saldiva about a spoken word artist who recently visited MSU to celebrate National Poetry Month. On the makeshift stage that overtook the main lobby of the Union, a woman stood with one fist punched in the air, proclaiming in a loud, clear voice that she wanted to be the world's greatest magician. And she wasn't even doing any tricks. And with a twist of my wrist and a spoken command, I would conjure with my hands and put a spell on all the land so that it would profit only the families of those who work it. As the world's greatest magician, there's so much I plan to achieve. I got so many tricks tucked up my sleeve. Her name is Gabriela Garcia Medina, a world-renowned spoken word poet originally from Cuba who spent her childhood traveling alongside her parents through Europe. You can't help but become more compassionate and more extroverted from being in so many different uh, environments. Gabriella's poetry isn't all centered upon lighthearted and fun ideas, like being the world's greatest magician. Although one of her poems does focus on her affinity for lingerie. The topics of her poems range from childhood stories to the social and racial injustices that people face. She takes her life experiences and others' stories and weaves them lyrically together in a word of Spanish and English, leaving the final product a sometimes rhyming, often humorous, philosophical, and inspiring poem. We sit on each other's laps and our thighs overlap like our English and our Spanish. Nobody really knows how we do it, but we manage. For the past six years, she has been touring colleges all over the United States, and also performing her poetry in other venues. At an event like this, you get a really good crowd because they love poetry. But at a college cafeteria, not only do you grab those people, but you also grab the ones that are just walking by that like, I don't like poetry. But then they hear it and they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Although she loves her day job, it requires her to spend the bulk of her time traveling. Gabriella says because of this, it is hard to find any inspiration. You think, once you have this lifestyle, you think, oh yeah, it's a one hour a day at the school, you know, two hours tops, and then the rest of the time I can do whatever I want. But you're really, you're just so focused on what needs to get done that it takes up a lot of thought space. She believes it is time to move on, 
Gabriella has decided to transition into the next phase of her life, going back to school and pursuing her master's degree. As an artist, I feel like I've hit a wall. It's really scary, actually, to put this all aside. I think it's just my own personal journey. My goal is to empower and inspire other people, but in order for me to do that to the highest of my ability, I need to be inspired and empowered myself, and I'm stuck. Although it is unlikely Gabriella will be coming back to MSU in the near future, her poetry will speak for itself. It's never too late to believe in magic. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.